Hey everybody, React Native EU is back for a 2023 edition on site in Wrocław, Poland, September 7th through 8th. I'll be there talking about lifting and shifting the entire React ecosystem into new languages uh, outside of JavaScript and into totally different languages. Uh, you can join me and the rest of the React Native ecosystem and the global enthusiast community. Get your ticket now. I'll see you there. Okay, everyone. Hello and welcome to the React Native Show podcast. Today, I'm going to talk with uh, Matt Hargett, who has 25 experience in software development and in technology readership in Silicon Valley about the intersection of business and technology when it comes to uh, React Native and in general. Matt, what I want to talk about with you today is uh, for you to show us the impact of technological changes uh, on the product and business. So I don't want to focus on wins or on the failures, but rather on the uh, process and approaches to tech and organizational challenges in large organizations. How does that sound? Sounds great. So uh, Matt, can you maybe start us off with telling us a little bit about your experience in software development? Yeah, uh, well, my mom was a programmer and uh and a gamer and so she got me started programming and gaming uh pretty early so um i'd say i was typing in programs without her assistance probably starting around 1984 or so and um can i ask you how old were you back then oh uh, i was six uh and the computer <laughs> was a, a texas instruments ti-99 4a um and uh, it's just one of those 8-bit micros, and I was programming basic on it. Mm -hmm. And uh, in 1987, we got a PC, and that's when I kind of moved on to uh, Pascal and assembly language programming. And somewhere around 1991 or two, we got a C compiler, and I started learning learning C and stuff. Um, but uh, but yeah, uh, so that's when I kind of started programming. So I've I've never kind of stayed in one language or with one kind of hardware platform. Mm -hmm. Kind of even even as a young person, I kind of moved around and stuff. And so I kind of kept that going after I kind of um, started working sort of uh, professionally. Well, so probably it's hard to stay in the same programming language when you start with uh, basic and you start with Pascal and just keep it going for the next 25 years. I think it would be hard, but there's so many people that you meet that are like, they've invested so much of their personality into being the C++ person or into being the .NET person or into being the Java person, right? That's who they, mm -hmm. that's, uh, and I never understood that mentality personally. Uh, it's like, to me, it's like the right tool for the right job. Mm -hmm. um, but um, but yeah, I moved out to California, uh, to the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area about 26 years ago now. And um, went from you know living out of a uh, suitcase to uh, uh, working at McAfee, which was then changing its name to Network Associates. And uh, I worked there during the bootstrap of their whole sort of security business unit, uh, network security business unit, which is really cool. Uh, very stressful. I worked way too hard. I was really dumb. I burnt myself out really, really well uh but um and then yeah and then it was just a steady drip 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 of jobs um leading up to the last job i had which was a principal software engineer at roblox um, yeah so we met uh almost half a year ago a few months ago in san francisco uh, on our um event about performance optimization in react native and i was so freaking impressed by your like resume and experience and i remember that you talked about all of the subject with all of the people and you, you were like the smartest person in the room obviously and like i since then i wanted you to come on this meeting and uh we figured out that um, with the way that your career uh went right you are very well positioned um, in talking about large scale organization and large, large scale problems. So maybe let's uh, jump into that. You said you worked on this company and on that position, but um, 
maybe we can talk more broadly and generic about about those kind of issues. So uh, when developing complex products in large organizations, uh, that means juggling multiple priorities and multiple goals at once, uh, like from feature development to user experience to performance. So what is your experience with performance optimization goals in growing products? Yeah. Um, yeah, so like performance, I kind of categorize in sort of uh, two, two ways. One is um, I kind of categorize stability as ultimate performance because if the application or the game crashes, that's zero frames per second. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then, and that's the worst performance you could possibly have. Um, and then there's, and then there's, other facets of performance, like runtime performance that the user can perceive, right? And so there's um, how smooth are the animations? What's the app startup time? How quickly does the user see fresh data and not stale cache data? Um, what's the battery life if it's a portable device? Um, and these those things aren't mutually exclusive, uh, but if you kind of pay attention to just one of those dimensions and you ignore the rest, you can often, what I've found was that you'll often make a lot of great progress in one dimension, but you'll have regressed the other ones without realizing it. Mm -hmm. So with performance, um, uh, both, both kind of stability and durability, but also kind of runtime performance that the user can perceive or that helps saleability. Um, uh, I always think about how are we going to automate the measurement so that on every commit to the source repository, every every automated build that happens, we get uh, some kind of uh, performance feedback loop on that so that we know immediately when something goes wrong. Uh, so that when one of those dimensions sort of regresses. And some of those dimensions are easier to measure than others. Some of them are harder to measure than others. But the worst kind of business outcome is um, when you've spent nine months optimizing, but then you've de-optimized in other dimensions, you weren't measuring or testing or automating the measurement of in any way. And then it comes close to ship time and you find out, oh my God, what are we going to do? That's a really bad business outcome. Yeah. Computer. I can think of the example of trading like performance optimization, like the milliseconds and seconds in some area of uh, application and exchanging it for the code, code code complexity. And then you have your code base some complex that you cannot add any new features because you uh, sacrifice the extendability of your code for this like uh, short-term uh, performance optimization in another area. Yeah, kind of, yeah. That's another risk that can kind of happen in terms of like long-term maintenance or long-term sustainability or supportability. And so there's kind of the, in the source code, you can go like into like non-idiomatic code. And that could be inline assembly in the middle of your C++ function or unsafe code in C Sharp or writing kind of what we called crankshaft script in the early days of Node.js, where you could kind of write JavaScript code that just looked like gobbledygook, but that played into the way that the V8 JIT liked to work. But yeah. then you you had to be the savant that understood how the JIT works to even read the code, as opposed to going at it from a different perspective, which is, you know, in C plus plus, how do we teach? How do we, you know, submit? Uh, how do we submit code to the C to the C plus plus compiler itself? How do we submit a PR to GCC or to Clang for that matter? So that just optimizes our code better when we write it write it idiomatically. The other piece of that is. That's the source code artifact that people read and edit. Then the other piece of that is you're supporting it in the field and you get, hopefully you get crash telemetry. So you get stack traces. Okay. How readable are the stack traces in your, in your highly optimized code? Because if you've made the product really fast, but then you can't support it in the field, you get stack traces that no one can make that are inactionable. Um, that's very problematic. And we could rattle off a whole list of products that kind of had like an amazing user experience, but then got more and more unstable over time. And then they just couldn't support it. And then some other product comes around that maybe isn't as fast or performant, but the fact that it's more stable, it just annihilates the other thing. Right. Um, so those, those are two kind of facets of that, which is kind of source code legibility, but then also stack trace uh, legibility. Yeah. So uh, going back to like uh, more concrete examples, uh, from our conversation previously and from some other podcasts that I know that you've been to, uh, 
Um, I know that you have a very cool story about setting a very, uh, very ambitious project optimization goal uh, in one of the projects that you work on. So I would like to, uh, I would like you to talk a little bit about the goal and also a um, process of how you set those kind of goals and how you, um, how you set them in large scale projects. Sure. Yeah, I think that probably the the, the one that um, people are most interested in is the uh, 200 millisecond app launch time target that we had on a particular consumer electronics project. Um, and I didn't set that goal. That was set by um, the kind of product vision team. So it wasn't even set by like design, like uh, product designers necessarily. It was set by kind of people high up in the kind of product product development organization. Um, and then there were some other constraints going into that as well, like the technology leadership really wanted to use web technologies, um, but they knew that they didn't want to use, they had you had a browser-based UI in their, for the previous version of their, of their device. And while we've all seen great performing web UIs, it can be done. Mm-hmm. For some reason, it just couldn't be done with those people at that time with that product. Uh, The performance was extremely poor. The stability was extremely poor, Um, undeniably. Like it was just like an accepted problem that they had. But they're like, we want to use web technologies. And so, um, and they did have a team of dedicated engineers to maintaining their kind of browser runtime, which is WebKit based. And so, um, so, uh, this was the same at a previous company that I was at, um, Blue Jeans. They had had kind of a bad experience with um, Node WebKit, and there's no reason Node WebKit couldn't perform, but they just had real trouble with it. So they were like, "We don't want a browser. We don't want any browser-based UI." And so it was kind of the same constraints where they had a kind of an existing corpus of JavaScript code. They had a bunch of talent that knew. JavaScript and new web technologies. So the the way I was kind of looking at it was what can we do with this existing talent pool that we have and the kind of existing supporting infrastructure that we have that can like, you know, uh, de- uh, de-symbolicate, <laughs> this is a made up word, uh, but can kind of like take JavaScript stack traces like that have been obfuscated by Babel or whatever and like turn them into mm-hmm. something nicer for the developers that are looking at trying to debug crashes and stuff like that. Um, and uh, so there, there, there's a bunch of pieces of it. Some of we talked about like, how do we support this thing? How do we automate the performance benchmarking? But then also um, React Native made a lot of sense there because it's like, well, people still get to program in JavaScript and there is still kind of a tag-based like, or declarative language underneath that right um so it should be mostly in people's wheelhouse but as we know like react can be a paradigm shift from coming from other frameworks like ember or angular or things like yeah. that and, and maybe they've gotten closer together in the intervening years i don't know excuse me but um but uh but yeah it was really how, yeah how do we do that with the talent pool that we have um in, in the kind of ecosystem and react native was further along at that point. Like there were major apps shipping with it. It wasn't just one or two, it was like 10 or 12. Um, and so the kind of proof point was there. It wasn't nearly as radical of an idea with this 200 millisecond app launch pro- project as it was with blue jeans. Whereas with, with blue jeans, yeah, you had like Wix out talking about it and Airbnb's app was kind of using it, but like there was not like a, a groundswell. It was difficult to tell if it was a technology that people could be successful with repeatedly, like over and over again. Uh, and it wasn't just isolated to just a few geniuses in the world. Uh, but by the time we got to this uh, consumer electronics device, uh, it was pretty, um, in my mind, quite de-risked. So the big first question was, was, well, how do we start prototyping? We didn't have any designs um, and it's kind of coming in hot. So 
what we started to do was to kind of recreate the existing Ember-based WebKit apps in React Native. Uh, because that's like, well, we're not, we don't need to design. We can just copy what we did and make sure that we have all the React Native controls that we need, that there's no weird hidden gotchas or there's no kind of memory leaks. Like we can kind of like, we I think we tried to use the same UI automation, test automation that QA had uh, in the React Native version of the apps as well. But also in consumer electronics devices, um, and it was the same at multiple companies that I've kind of been at, uh, you get some new piece of hardware and it's like tip top secret. So it's like in a hidden room behind eight locks and like you need five people to turn the key at the same time. And um, so people are kind of disclosed about the details of the project in very small batches, like batches of five or eight or something, five or 10 or something like that. And part of that is just information control. Um, so that if something leaks, they know, well, it might've been this cohort or, and sometimes they would do interesting things like give slightly incorrect information, like uh, some specific number that doesn't matter for app development, but that would be slightly wrong, like the exact amount of RAM or the exact amount of compute units. And then if that number got leaked out, they kind of knew which cohort uh, kind of, kind of came out of. But I think we started with six or eight people. And the big thing for me was how do we, let's train these people with experts, React Native sort of experts. And so we brought in um, folks from Callstack um, that had been kind of running React Native open source releases for a couple of years at that point. Um, and then uh, we brought in uh, this Dots Labs um, and they had some trainers. And then there was a third place I'm not gonna mention because their training wasn't great. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to advertise for something that ended up not being great, but like, um, but we kind of brought in a diversity of people of, of actual practitioners, not people who memorized a book, not people who memorized a training or just looked at the slides and said it while it was happening. Yeah. Because we had, you know, the, the, the individual contributor engineers that we were training in these batches of five or eight or 10, um, had real questions, technical questions and needed real technical answers like, yeah, but when I do this, you know, when I try to use, not a hook, but when I try to use Redux to do this, that has this effect, what is that? Um, the And then the other thing was that because this product organization had such a problem with performance and stability in their previous product, um, uh, I kind of was the, played like the editor-in-chief of the training content. So I kind of told the, uh, the training firms of Callstack and this dot, like I want to cover like uh, unit testing and performance, like, and so I said, what are like three examples of typical um, things that cause re-renders in React and React Native that you see, the mistake people make over and over again. Yeah. I want to cover those and I want to cover how to kind of use React Dev tools to, to mm, be able to observe them happen. Because uh, on a desktop or whatever, like it can happen so fast, you don't even notice it. it's only on lower end hardware or when the hardware is under duress. And so we had kind of had that focus because everything else at that time, you could kind of go to Stack Overflow. There's a lot of medium blog posts, a lot of YouTube stuff. There's a, there was a lot of content out there about what to do, but there was a lot of content out there about what not to do. Like here are the things to avoid. There wasn't a lot of content like that yet. And so, so that's what the training kind of focused on. Um, and that worked, worked pretty well. So we sort of trained people with a focus on performance and developer testing, um, but also just learning React Native and how all the layers work and how the async bridge works and a bunch of other technical details. Um, and I think uh, it was about six months in or so, we settled on using React Navigation and so we started to fold React Navigation stuff into our uh, in, into the trainings as well. Here's how to set up routes. Here's these things. We we submitted pull requests to React Navigation. Um, and just to back up for one second, for me, for me, I think part of the challenge of the stability and the performance in the previous product was because they had hard forked so many projects. So they were kind of in these weird forks outside of the regular ecosystem. 
Or in the case of Ember, they were using stock Ember, but they had kind of customized their use of it in such a way that there was no patterns that they could look at in the ecosystem or the community at that point. And, and no so, one could help out and no one could contribute to like custom solution. Right. Yeah. right. And, and then with my business hat on, in terms of onboarding people, how quickly from hire do you get to net positive contribution, right? You know, where they can make a commit, uh, they can make a PR, the review is over pretty quick. It gets merged. They don't need to revert, you know, within within a week's time or something like that. Um, that was really important to me um, in terms of scaling up the effort. Um, and so, uh, sorry. So, how come it took you six months to land on React Navigation? What are you, what were you using like previously? Uh, well, keep in mind we were like doing these from scratch. So not from scratch, but we were copying the existing app, and yeah. um, uh, and then so part of it was like, like so we had these top-down directives, like has to be web technologies, but not web views, and that kind of left sort of React Native. Um, and this company had done tried to do a JavaScript sort of GL framework before that was also mm -hmm. extremely unstable, uh, extremely unstable. Uh, and so, so it's kind of like, no, this needs to be kind of sort of uh, off the shelf thing. But part of this discovery process was, um, even though the 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 people were the pe the, the 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 engineers that were kind of being disclosed and being trained, even though they weren't familiar with React Native. Uh, you know, the vast majority of them were hyper intelligent, like they're super smart. And so I didn't want to lock things down in terms of we, like, we shall use this library for this reason. I wanted to see what these different groups came up with in terms of um, just from their own opinion and their own sort of experience and let that bubble up. Because while you, uh, I don't think React's native router existed, <clears throat> I don't believe. And um, there was something else for React Native. I don't remember what it was. But React Navigation was the kind of credible thing. But I wanted to see what people came up with or, or what they found in the community. Because from an, just an information perspective, like I can't, I, I as a principal or as a CTO or what, whatever my title is at a given company, I can't drink from every fire hose at the same time of information, or at least not meaningfully. And so kind of, letting people sort of do their own detective work and develop their yeah, the, opinions. I think really the important. research process is a quite important part of the process as well, because even though you might land on the ah, like battle-tested scenario, a battle-tested library that everyone use, you would look uh, at the two uh, next ones on the GitHub list, and you might uh, look into some paradigms, some some solutions that they came up with and maybe uh, borrow something from those patterns, from those scenarios. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, um, yeah, exactly. So, so like, uh, it's like, is there a best in class library right now? And if there isn't, um, you know, can we pay someone to develop it so we don't have to develop it? And so yeah. with, with, with React Navigation um, or, or any other library really in, the, that, in that whole project or actually any, any project that I work on, if you talk to people who worked with me, I'm, I'm pretty consistent about, I ask like a couple of questions, like what's the diversity of committers to the project? Like, does it just have one committer, like one reviewer and that's it? That's a little bit, not a red flag. But if there's, but of like, okay, there's kind of a bus or a truck number, like if that person gets hit by a bus, who's going to merge stuff into that project? And then is it going to, is it going to break into, you know, 10 forks? And this is a challenge I have right now with my WebXR uh, project that I'm working on with 3JS. And for, for WebXR uh, products, there's like 10 or 11 or 12 different forks of 3JS, depending on what what kind of performance you need on what device. And that to me is just like not approachable. It's, it's a fragmented ecosystem. The other thing is, what is the CI like? Uh, what is the, the CI like on the open source projects? You know, does it run tests? What's the code coverage of the tests? And that kind of, if that, if it has CI, it has good test coverage in, in CI, that tells me like, okay, it's good now and it will probably stay good for some time. 
Um, so with React Navigation, we're, or in general, same thing with Redux and other stuff, we were just kind of telling people like, let's just focus on trying to recreate the interactions that we had and make sure we can do that. And in the meantime, if you have something that needs a tab navigator sort of uh, layout or something like that, you could use React Navigation or you could use something else. Um, and then after enough of those kind of prototype apps were made, it, be, it became clear that there was no other uh, no other alternative that kind of met the bars that I was setting in terms of diversity of committers. It's not just one company like running the whole thing. Yes, you can submit a PR, get it merged. In fact, that was one of our tests was we had to fork React Navigation. Actually, it was to fix two bugs, um, uh, which were totally generic bugs. They had nothing to do with our product. They were just some generic bugs. And so we submitted those as PRs. Uh, I might have done it for the person that... that that um, some of the some of the people didn't want to submit to participate in open source, which was kind of interesting. Um, but uh, but um, we submitted those and they got merged pretty quickly. And I was yeah, like, so this, this so much I just we we can work with. Uh, actually, I think you are right now uh, going into my next questions. So, uh, yeah. so I will ask them because like let's bring this point home and maybe let's wrap it up with uh, the opportunities and challenges of bringing. React Native as a framework, as a set of rules, libraries, React Navigation, Redux, etc., for a performance optimization in this case. How would you like sum it up, uh, React Native, in terms of this uh, big performance goal? How did it work for you? What were the challenges and opportunities? Um, yeah, so, you know, earlier we talked about, like, Sometimes you have look, sometimes you might have to write inline assembly in C to get performance in a specific place. But the reason you have to do that is because the compiler is not doing a good enough job. And JavaScript can run into or any scripting language can run into this as well. Um, even if you don't have a JIT enabled, even if you're just interpreted only, which this particular product was interpreted only uh, for for reasons. Um, and so, you know, anytime there's kind of a just a in scripting languages even with a great JIT, just typically aren't as fast as compiled languages, period, full stop. Someone wants to fight about it, we can fight about it. But I think it's pretty well understood, well acknowledged. For I think it doesn't mean scripting languages are bad or lesser than. They have advantages as well. Um, but kind of going into it and getting those end-to-end -end experiences, even if they're just replicas of the previous generation device, um, getting those experiences up and running and then figure out what is the controller latency. If I press the button, do, how quickly does it navigate to the next thing? And then it's not fast enough. So you go, okay, well, you profile it. So you figure out, okay, can we attach the WebKit profiler to this JavaScript core, uh, JavaScript VM? Uh, what is that like? And then it turned out that there was some uh, challenges with WebKit inspector to be able to even do that. So, but we found that stuff way early because we were so focused on even in these even in these kind of not bare bones but these kind of walking skeletons of prototype apps what is it like to profile those things and it turned out that there was that there was work for the kind of the sort of webkit team within that company to do to just to, even to enable that um, so then we were like well now we're blocked on webkit is there a way that we can kind of um, do this with Chrome. And so using um, a thing I think a lot of React Native folks do, uh, you know, where kind of the JavaScript runs not on the device, but it kind of runs in in your Chrome and in React Dev tools. And then you can yeah. profile using all the great stuff you have on your desktop. That's what we did a lot of. Um, but, you know... You have to be careful though, right? In those situations, because oh, no, you might totally, have some it's, it's not a there. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, the, the, the JIT, something that's not a problem for the JIT that doesn't show up in the profiler in the Chromium JIT at all could be a huge problem on WebKit with a JIT or WebKit with or a JavaScript core with a JIT or JavaScript core without a JIT. Um, but you can do a first pass, right? Uh, while, yeah, yeah. So just, it's just waiting and twiddling your thumbs or whatever. We, we were able to make progress. 
Because another thing that we were trying to figure out is um, on the automation side of that is how can we test these apps, both in terms of just functional testing, but also performance testing? How can we get that feedback loop without having to deploy it onto this specialized secret hardware? Because even though we're inside the company, like at that stage of the project, there aren't any development kits really like them are like properly put together that you can have like a, a hundred of them or a thousand of them or whatever. Um, so we looked at um, React Native Web and we talked to the maintainer of that, uh, Nicholas Gallagher, who was at Twitter at the time. And React Native Web is what was used to render mobile Twitter. Um, and uh, it was really cool. Uh, and what that would have what that was going to allow us to do was to start up these apps in a headless Chrome in a little Linux container, go through some automation, go through some automated profiling even, and gather some numbers before it ever hit any dev kit. And just the general, with a kind of business hat on, just like fail as fast and cheap as possible so that you don't fail later when it takes longer and it's kind of more expensive. Um, and it, there's some investment to get that capability but what that means from a scalability perspective both scaling up and scaling down is that um you know when those new hires come online and they're figuring stuff out how fast can they get feedback that's completely autonomic without a principal need to review their pr how can they get that feedback for themselves without another person stopping writing a feature to go you, know, yeah. that, you, you do want to support people and you do want them to be mentored and all that stuff, but how much of that feedback loop can they just get so that they can iterate locally um, and as they kind of come up to speed and learn learn really fast? Conversely, I guess what you're saying is that in uh, using those kind of like bridging technologies, React Native Web, you are able to start faster, test faster, and just develop the product and not worry about like running this in like real world scenarios on any sort of real platform or not not even in simulators for iOS, Android, stuff like that. You can just right. prototype and you have this like fast feedback loop, uh, which yeah. is something that I really appreciate about React Native. Yeah. Yeah. And then, then there comes like the unhappy time. This didn't happen in this project, but you know, if you have to scale down, you know, if you're in like startup, a startup, not an established company for, or even an established company that has layoffs, goodness knows, there's been lots of layoffs at established companies recently. But, um, those kind of having that kind of infrastructure in place, again, if you have to kind of cut the team in half and so, uh, or, or, you know, and so you have people that are smart, but never worked on certain pieces of code when you kind of consistently incrementally invest in these things, um, uh, this kind of infrastructure where it's like, how do we fail fast and cheap? And if you can kind of invest in that kind of upfront, you can double the size of your team or cut your team in half and the project won't die, right? Or be extremely painful or whatever else. Yeah, it, it'll suck to scaling up and scaling down both can be really challenging. Um, but uh, at the very least, it becomes doable as opposed to kind of a, a a plane crash or something. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so you kind of using React Native Web in that way at that time in 2018, like maybe late 2017, um, was great. And uh, the the maintainer of that was very gracious uh, with his time to come talk to us. We were like, want to do this? We couldn't tell what we were doing, but but we we're like, here's what we're trying to do. Does this does this make sense? Does this are you are you going to do anything in the project that's going to kind of become incompatible with what we're trying to do. Because with that project, React Native Web, he was basically the only committer. So that was a concern of mine. Well, like I remember that. What, yeah, like what, uh, what, what, are, what are your plans? And I think it's different now because I think Expo even now supports React Native Web or supports some variant, a React Native DOM or yeah, ended up becoming, becoming popular. Expo, I think uh, under the hood, Expo Web uses the React Native Web. Uh, at the time, uh, a few years ago, I was looking for a technology that bridges React Native and React so that I couldn't uh, develop on like three different platforms at the same time. I found this uh, React XP 
from Microsoft and they were yeah, developing yeah. Skype on top of this. And yeah, yeah. then they, I guess, also switched to uh, React Native, just, just just the proper React Native. Yeah, um, yeah. React XP was a. Uh, I learned about it when I was still at Blue Jeans, and um, so at Blue Jeans, uh, I worked directly with Eric Rosell, who was then at Microsoft, and now he's at Meta, uh, working on React Native on non-mobile platforms, um, and uh, uh, the majority of Blue Jeans's revenue, uh, or a lot of it, came from. Enterprise desktops that were Windows Seven and Windows Eight, um, and so, um, so as a result of that, because of that business constraint, we brought React we brought React Native to Windows Seven and Eight, and that was completely in collaboration with Eric Rozell uh, at Microsoft, and that was all done on GitHub.com/slash/Microsoft/slash/React-Native Windows, um, and we were working on it and. Uh, React Native just has such a great story when you bring desktops into it as well, because you, well, you can share ninety-five percent of your code base across now three platforms: uh, you know, iOS, Android, and um, Windows. And I think TVOS was getting added also, which mm -hmm. wasn't a thing that we cared about at BlueJeans necessarily. But it was interesting because the economics of it are fantastic. Where it's like, hey, everybody, like almost everybody, can say working in JavaScript almost all the time. We get a ton of code sharing, which means that instead of duplicating like a Java code base and then a Swift code base and a C sharp code base and a whatever code base, each with their own set of bugs and their own support load and whatever else, the you can kind of almost wave a magic React Native wand and lower dramatically lower your support overhead potentially. I mean, there's ways to there's ways to take this strategy and execute it really poorly, but as you've got these economics in mind. Right. Um, and, and you'll notice there's kind of a continuity about like, well, how do we make performance sustainable so that we don't pay twice or that we don't do all the work and then have it unravel on us? Uh, how do we scale a team up and scale a team down? How do we whatever? Every every technology project or like uh, end user product oriented project that I kind of work on, those are the kind of those questions and those those th those are the things I think about before I really start even getting the inventory of what technologies are available. Because yeah. if the company is like, yeah, we're going to ship and like this doesn't need to ship or this can ship whenever it's ready and whatever else, well, then it's like maybe off the shelf technology, maybe mature technologies aren't appropriate, or 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 there's an opportunity to try something else. Or if you've got a company that just has is doing great business and they have tons of money and you, then you can have an opportunity to go like, well, how about we do two parallel projects and one chooses this technology path and one chooses this technology path because they're both potentially great ways to have a, a great, a, a very kind of sustainable, scalable software business uh, or software as a service business. Um, and so understanding those kinds of sort of uh, business dimensions um, is really where I start with everything, even for my own personal ventures. Uh, the I had founded a company in 2003. I've, I've started this Delph XR company right now. And it's the same, I, I think the same way, regardless of like kind of how big or how small the company is or how much money they have to spend or how little money they have to spend. So um, let me stop you here because you said, um, you said something about React Native Windows. And then you said also that like choosing the right technology for the right project and performance optimization is like tied into this because from economics, uh, it's better obviously to invest in performance optimization of code base that renders on multiple platforms. But I guess what you need to care about in those situation is that the uh, foundation is very solid, right? So. Yeah. My question, yeah. I'm go I'm getting so somewhere. My question is, at which point in time you'd consider React Native Windows, React Native Mac OS, stable enough so that you can focus only on React Native layer and not like contribute directly to the foundation uh, yeah. in order for your product to be stable? That's a good question. Uh, and... Um... 
you know, some people go like, well, which big companies are using it? And for me, it's not about the size of the companies that are de- have deployed it. Um, and, and and this would go, this would be the same conversation if we were talking about Haskell or Go or in, pick, pick a buzz, pick a technology people are enthusiastic about. You can always find nerds, myself included, that will tell you all the positives about the thing that they're already invested in. And what I'm usually interested in just learning about, like, what are the challenges? Because anything can work. <laughs> it's how does it work at scale? And so... Um, and how or, much time you invest in making it work. Exactly. And so with React Native Windows, BlueJeans in particular was like, we're going to support joining meetings using WebRTC on the browser. And I'm like, well, then you're going to have JavaScript and you're we got to have that code base. How do we take... How do we elevate ourselves out of micro tactics into actual strategy when it comes to this, the client software side of this business. <clears throat> and, um, and so with React Native Windows, it was not deployed anywhere. No one had used it in a real product. But um, uh, again, the, the kind of business posture of BlueJeans at the time, and just, um, again, trying to think strategically, I was like, this, if this works, this will be a effectively a culture shift for this company in terms of how they think about client software business. Um, and, uh, but it, so there were no early adopters to go talk to. So we had to do the work, but they were game. Uh, uh, the blue jeans leadership was game to go do that. And they had a relationship with Microsoft because reasons I forget. Uh, so they were like, yeah, let's, this makes sense. Um, but we did go in with eyes wide open where it was like, okay, well, uh, and I did do a proof of concept myself where I ported a big subset of it from Windows 10 over to WPF at Windows 7 and 8. And and then it was just a matter of, can we get this merged? <laughs> and Eric Rosell was awesome. Uh, great person. Loved working with him. We got so much kind of stuff done. And then, of course, as I got to be one of the people that caused the activity in the repo to go up, um, so that uh, other people then saw the activity and went, oh, was there a thing going on here? And then we also co-presented at some React Native meetups and stuff. For Mac OS and or, or Windows Now, I would go, well, like, what is the size of the deployments and how many individual deployments are there? So what I would ask people for any client-based technology is, how many hundreds of thousands of users do you have per month? What are your crash rates? And is there any other kind of high level metrics you can kind of tell me? Because if you say like, well, we've got 12 users, you don't have enough of a sample size. It's, it's everybody starts somewhere. Nobody starts, yeah, yeah. You, know, you know, but to me, just from a, with my data science hat on, that's not enough of a sample size for me to take your experience super seriously, uh, necessarily. Um, and that can be okay. I just suddenly I know I can go ask all these people who are going doing conference talks and talking about whatever technology you want to talk Glimmer or whatever else and go like so your product like how many issues like how many issues are you supporting on it right now it's like oh we don't have a product with this I'm like why how do you get accepted at conferences if you don't actually have production experience but uh um so so there's that kind of there's that kind of piece of it where it's like what is this like to support in the field because everything could look great in the GitHub repo. They can have tons of stars. They can have great looking documentation. And then it's just, ever, and then you find out, oh, if you try to develop more than a hello world or a to-do list app, that's it. That, that, then you've hit the ceiling of what it can do. Yeah. Um, and that's not a showstopper if there's some something, something else really special about it. But for like uh, tvOS, macOS, uh, Windows, uh, React Native on any other platform, that's what I would kind of ask is try to find those. Uh, if, if you are deploying at that scale or you want to use deployed, had people having deployed at that scale as a proof point. So for React Native Windows, I, um, it's in use on Xbox, right? It's in use with Office, right? It's really the, it's really the Office team that kind of swept through and I think got a lot of sort of just internal staffing on React Native Windows. But my question not even Windows. Be, I think the the Office team uh, contributes to just React Native in general. Oh no, totally. No, no, totally. Yeah, like, yeah. But then, he, but, the, but then, yeah, they instead of being Eric Rosell all by himself, 
right? Okay, that's a good business management every quarter that this is still a good thing to invest in. Uh, and at the time, I, 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 what I perceived was, you know, Microsoft had just spent a lot of money acquiring uh, Zimian or Xamarin, I forget which company name came second, which was also kind of cross-platform UI. And then, then there's this React Native thing, which is not even using .NET. And they're like, but we just acquired this thing. Shouldn't we um, expose this to customers? And so I talked to a lot of internal, had a lot of meetings with uh, program managers at Microsoft kind of explaining like, yeah, Xamarin is great uh, if you're not going to have a functional web presence. If your product's going to get deployed to web as well, you it needs to perform well on web and without a duplicate code base, in my opinion. Uh, you, you can obviously have eight duplicate code bases and spend your money that way. That's just not how I like to spend my spend my money. So with React Native Windows, I think, you know, my question right now, would be, and I just don't know, I'm not in the ecosystem as much, is what who are the non-Microsoft people that are deploying it at scale who have to support crashes in the field, who have to, you know, yeah. debug blogs and other stuff like that. And also, like, my question wasn't uh, necessarily uh, about React Native Windows, but just a technology, right? And the React Native Windows, as an example of open source technology, that you have to, like, gauge if this is uh, ready to use in your project or not yet. And I guess that the metrics, the, the things that you just discussed, are very good for those. Uh, I want to further extrapolate if you would have to consider um, open sourceness of this tech. So React Native Windows, React Native uh, open source technologies, easier probably to um, to gauge, to estimate if this is already like production ready for your particular use case. How about some closed source technologies? Are there any other considerations there? Uh, yeah, I mean, same thing where, except you have less visibility, um, like, cause with GitHub, you can clone the code, you can run code climate on or ESLint or whatever you want to do to get a gauge of what's the complexity of the code base, what's the code coverage of their automated tests and stuff like that. Um, and so, but, so you really are relying on kind of, well, First thing you can kind of rely on is what are, who are your other customers? And then you go and have a very high candor conversation or try to find a someone that you can and just go like, what do you think of this vendor? Because now you're not talking about necessarily a community. You're talking about a vendor that you have a support contract with and possibly an SLA, right? A service level agreement, you know, so like if their service goes down for more than 24 hours, they pay, you pay that you pay your own customer like $10,000 every hour that you're down, right? Some SLAs are that, that strict. Um, and trying to find a customer that's like, have you deployed this at scale? What has it been like? You know, uh, some some commercial off-the-shelf software pro products, um, you know, the licensing can be really cantankerous. And I don't mean open source licensing, which is its own thing, but I just mean like, you know, where it's like, yeah, if you're a smaller, medium-sized thing, the pricing seems reasonable. But then as soon as like you get across some threshold, it becomes unreasonable. So, you know, and then you are tied of, in to, to this particular. Yeah, system. and then you're kind of really committed. So there, there's kind of two, two insane things that I look for, um, and I've made these kinds of deals with customers when I have my own company. Uh, and one is code escrow. So if the company uh, goes bankrupt or closes or whatever else, you know, and you're like, "Well, I've got you deployed. Or what am I supposed to do?" So there's a thing called code escrow that you can sign into your contract with the company with that entity to say like, yeah, if you go belly up, you have to give us a, and you can get pretty specific, like a working Docker container that allows us to self-host the code as you had it and your full, you know, source repository with all the history, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So um, an insurance policy. Yeah. And if you're doing like a $10 million deal or whatever, that's not inappropriate to go like, we're taking a bet on you. We need, we need some assurance besides your nice handshake. Like, drastically, what can we do? So code escrow is one thing um, that can be helpful. And I did that when I had my own startup. I didn't have a, you know, a, uh, I just did it to close deals because I didn't care if people had the source code. Because they don't have the team. <laughs> they could have the source code and all of our automated tests and whatever else. Uh, and But they won't have the team. But to be also the... Um, 
from the customer perspective, you know, they take a chance on you and you want to return that. In, I, I want to return that in kind and go, here's what I can do for you. If this thing goes, if, if this thing goes to zero, you can have source code. And also we made sure like in our master services agreement, for instance, that, um, uh, it was awarded in such a way that uh, customers could hire employees away if the company became insolvent, for instance. Oh, yeah. Um, so, so, uh, so that they get another good. And they could hire one of the people to come in and kind of carry it forward. The other sort of crazy thing um, that I look for to try to de risk those uh, situations is understanding who the investors are. If it's a, if, if it's a, 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 a a, a privately funded company that's been kind of funded with venture capital or whatever and understanding what those investors expectations are that will usually give you the best indicator of how bad the licensing and support problem is going to get um if so if an investor has a thing where it's like well we're going to give you two million dollar pre-seed but you need to be a billion dollar company in three years what's going to happen around year year two or year two and a half uh is uh, they, it's really annoying when this happens, but it happens quite a bit. Then what companies start to do is they just start to like, really like turn the screws on their existing customer base. Uh, and then those customers go somewhere else to go somewhere that's less annoying, or some companies will try to like package more and more and more sort of consulting and services with their software, as opposed to something that you can just buy, get training on and run with, um, and people should absolutely get paid what software is worth and people should get paid for training and for services that are, you know, in extenuating circumstances. But if the idea is that I'm going to buy a closed source thing for, you know, $2 million licensing a year and have to pay an on-site professional services person, and let's say that that comes up to like $500,000, then I'm kind of like, why wouldn't I just build my own thing in open source at this point and just I was going to go I was going to go back to that stuff. actually yeah so yeah. um what I'm hearing from you is um there are different like um metrics when you want to establish if some solution is good for you or not uh going into open source has its um benefits also has some some of its cons uh, when going with the closed source, you have also some um, some hedges that you need to establish. So you need to de-risk, right? Yep. So uh, something that we already touched on in the beginning of the conversation, but I want to like uh, have some of your opinions about that is how do you mm, de-risk when um convincing some stakeholders to adopt some particular technology either open source or not open source but how do you then communicate to your stakeholders um what what are the approaches of like choosing the the technology that you want them to pick yeah or the, the, like you might have a preference yeah um so for me it's really again it's about how do you fail fast and cheap um, even if that's not the story that your your nerd heart wants to tell about the technology. So kind of structuring a project so that at two or four week intervals and not too much longer, uh, how do you get those kind of functional checkpoints and then go back to the business and say, okay, we did what we said we, we, did what we, said we were going to do and having sometimes absolute numbers where it's like, can it hit 60 FPS? Can it do this and this and this? Things that are absolutely kind of quantitative, not qualitative. Because mm -hmm. of qualitative stuff, you can people can argue about it. And uh, I'd rather just have hard numbers. And for a lot of UX performance, um, transitions, animations, upload times, um, uh, how long does it take to fetch the data, all this kind of stuff. You can that can be measured like between start and end and start and end and start and end and so you can be very quantitative about that which I like it shortens the conversations um, and so uh, kind of deciding what are the things that we're worried about gathering all however irrational the worries actually the, the more irrational the worries are the better because those are the easiest to disprove where people are like well I'm worried it's going to melt down the universe it's like okay well we're going to do this for a month 
And if it doesn't melt down the universe, then we're going to check that box. Um, so, but being quantitative and agreeing on that quantitative thing. And some people might want to go like, well, I would hit 200 milliseconds tomorrow. And you go like, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to shoot for 800 milliseconds on the prototype hardware that isn't even the final hardware. And we're going to learn a lot even trying to hit that. Mm-hmm. And then the next milestone in four weeks, we'll take it down to 750 or 700 or whatever else. And if you have these checkpoints where you go like, we're going to do four or five of these checkpoints. And if we get to checkpoint number five, then this is, pr- this is probably it. Can we all agree? Yeah, this isn't blind. Yeah. And I think what a lot of people get into is they try to argue with people's concerns as opposed to just hearing them. And, acknowledge, and writing them down and acknowledging them and just going like, this person has this concern. It doesn't matter if it's logical or based in fact or not. How can you provide facts in that fact vacuum and be fact-oriented as opposed to opinion-oriented? And I found large companies or small companies, right? Um, that th- doesn't really kind of make a difference here because it's not that the boss is the boss. It's kind of like you need to respect the fiduciary duty that some of these folks have and that they're probably scared a lot of the time (laughs) so you can be their buddy by not arguing with them about saying like well you shouldn't be afraid but but it's not you you should manage a hundred you need to show the results and 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 not just argue with some perception of some technology yeah and and just be able to go like in four weeks we cut bait and and do something else and we'll have when we have a plan Mm -hmm. b and we know what plan b is and if there's enough resources, you can go, let's run plan A and plan B at the same time. Yeah, you were saying that. I, I, I'm i thinking the same thing, like A-B testing on team's perspective, on the perspective of, on, on the projects. You choose two different approaches. You set up those like milestones, those checkpoints, uh, the same for both teams. And let's see which technology. It's not even about the best team wins. It's the best technology, best approach for the particular use case. Right. And this is this is where, you know, like you've got performance stuff, but then there's also like what are the crashes like and making sure that that stuff's also baked into those milestones. And this this idea, this set-based design uh, comes from uh, lean software development books. And one of the examples that they give, and I, I think it's Leading Lean Software Development by uh, Mary and Tom uh, Poppendick, um, uh, they talk about the Toyota Prius. The Toyota Prius's vision, like the design goal, was it to be a a uh, hybrid, it was to hit a certain gas mileage. And then they had several teams and one of them did aerodynamics and materials, how do you make those materials lighter, how do you do whatever, and then a different one did a hybrid drivetrain. And at the end, they kind of looked at both of them, they kind of combined the best of both of those projects. And so there's no loser in that situation because the users win, <laughs> you know? Like, um, so that that's not like an idea I made up. That was an idea I got straight out of kind of lean software development and the kind of Toyota production system books. This um, is such an interesting example. I, I didn't know that about uh, Prius. I thought they they, want, they just wanted to go hybrid at that point. Gas mileage. It, it yeah. was all about gas mileage. It's, it, it's about the goal. It's about what you want to achieve and not uh, arguing means, yeah. about what means, yeah, you want yeah, yeah. to choose to, to, to do that. And again, if you if you have the money or just resourcing headcount, you know, uh, to be able to parallelize stuff, that does further de-risk and shorten the amount of time it will take to figure stuff out. Because instead of like doing three milestones and then bailing on technology A, and then and then you serially then start technology B and hope that it pans out better than technology A. It, yes, you're it, there's a higher capital uh, at project startup. Um, but because you're so de-risking everything and learning a lot, and even the technology that you don't end up using, you learned a lot doing that, that you can then go and you know, send PRs to the first project to the, if you're using open source or go to that vendor and say, Hey, this other vendor had this one feature that turned out to be awesome. Even though that vendor isn't what we chose, we want you to add this feature. So it's, it's not, it's never truly wasted time. Because everybody's learning something, um, but also when you want to do a high risk technology, uh, something that's not proven, you would approach it the kind of same way. How do we get quantitative about this so that we know that we can scale up 500 global engineers to all be operating in this 
technology? Like, how do we, how do we kind of do that? Um, and it's not, um, there's often not strictly right or wrong answers necessarily, but kind of a, a big thing for me was just like not forking anything. Um, uh, if there was some technology that we had to like fork and go way off out of the ecosystem, that for me, just thinking again about the economics where I'm like, we're going to lose so much time, feature development time doing that stuff. So, well, uh, it, doesn't it also like matter uh, at what stage you want to fork, right? If you have to fork at the beginning, that's not the right uh, tool for you. But if you are using this tool for like two years and then you want this one feature in open source that no one is willing to write in open source, you just... Me personally, I just fork then add the feature and try to like pu pu push it upstream. Yeah, yeah. I think that again, like if if you've got if 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 what you need is incompatible with the rest of the sort of community, that's one thing. But taking React Native Windows as like an example, right? There were quite a few, um, quite a few kind of React Native. Platforms. There's, I mean, there, there's a, there was like, there's like an ATM for a for like Ethereum or something like that. I forget what the name of the company was. And they did kind of a, new, a React Native Linux or React Native Ubuntu. They used Qt, and what they did is they forked the whole React Native repo and just modified everything in line. So their upgrades were interesting and challenging, and, and probably for Turbo modules and JSI at that transition point, it became super interesting. Um, yeah. And so, so like Windows is like an example, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll give a, a counter example as well. So with Windows, it was like, they didn't want Windows in the repo, period. Uh, but um, Eric Rozelle and Matt Padmasaki and a couple other folks at Microsoft, and then also some folks in the React Native community, including uh, Mike Grabowski at Callstack, came up with a way in React Native CLI to have out-of-tree platforms. So that one, you didn't have to open search your platform period, if you didn't want to. And then two, it didn't have to be in the repo. That's great. That's more flexibility for, for everybody. But then something happened where they took TBOS and put it in repo, and it was this uh, uh, Dunk Louder, I think is the... Yeah, React Native TBOS. Yeah, and um, it, it was really bothersome to me and some other folks because we got told no windows it's only ios and android but now you got tvos and then it's got all these weird if defs and all this other stuff in the build that's really complicated but you put that in anyways and that was annoying it really what it was was anti-microsoft bigotry on a few people's part was really what it was uh, or maybe, maybe pro apple <laughs> bigotry on somebody's part um but uh but you know can, so can you work with the ecosystem to make these seams and these extension points so that you can do stuff out of repo, which hypothetically they should want, especially if you will send them the PRs and go like, hey, we're going to send you the PRs so that React Native CLI can dynamically look via config, blah, 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 blah. And we're going to add tests and everything will be awesome and it'll you know be formatted nice and all this other stuff. Would you accept that? And um, And... In React Native, anyways, people were usually game for that stuff um, because they knew more platform reach equals more, more community, success. yeah, more community typically, yeah. Uh, and it also it it doesn't. The other thing also just to think about with some of the stuff is, are you putting more duress onto open source maintainers who are already super stressed, right? Where they open they don't get paid for open source; they're doing it in their spare time. And then they're dealing with like issues. Their issued account goes from a hundred open to two hundred open to three hundred open. That's not a that's a pressure cooker. And kind of relating to the human factor of that, even if it's not a sole maintainer, but it's just like a small group of people. Mm -hmm. When a when some of these frameworks start to get popular, the it's it's like a dream and a nightmare at the same time. Where it's like, oh my god, it's getting so many users, but holy shit, I'm drowning in trying to support all these users. Um, if they haven't gotten a sponsorship or whatever, where they can work on it really full time. Even if you can't work on it full time, it could be really tough. Um, and so I think that kind of having empathy for the maintainers and going like, I know this is really hard for you. Here's an idea that should make it easier for you by taking a big chunk of what you have in your repo right now and making it external. Uh, you know, uh, so, so that's a kind of a technical solution for 
I'm going to say people problem, but it's not a problem that those people are feeling that way. That those feelings are totally yeah. legit, and, and those are people that need to be supported. Um, but that's a kind of a te technology solution where you can go like, how do I relieve some of this burden? Uh, and out of tree platform was kind of one of the ways to to do that. So now there's, you know, I think you can find evidence of many out of tree platforms for React Native, none of which are in open source, or a, a bunch of them are not in open in open source like at all. Yeah, um, and that's great because Meta shouldn't have to care about some company. But you but you also don't have to fork in that situation. You don't have to fork React and start making customizations to the reconciler that, you know, result in highly unstable products or kind of things like that. Um, so yeah. there, ending, there's, there's always ending on unstable products. Maybe it's time we wrap it up. Uh, it's been an hour and it was great to have you. To recap, we've been geeking out and I love this conversation about scaling products, how to make them stable and not unstable, uh, how to make sustainable tech choices, uh, and how React Native fits into the the picture of large scales organization, large problems and uh, and solutions. So, Matt, thank you so much. Uh, I think we see each other on React Native EU in September. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I'm a speaker at React Native EU this year, and I'm super excited to talk to folks about uh, lifting and shifting the entire React, React Native, and GraphQL ecosystem into Lua and other languages. Yeah, so uh, looking forward to hearing you speak. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you so much, everyone who listened to us for the hour about uh, Large Scared Organization. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. Thank <laughs> you.